Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. And I am Tamara. And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. So let's just start with the fact that I am not feeling the best. So I was nervous about recording this podcast, but we must continue to the live. The show and we must, must yeah, go on. Exactly. So... Please forgive me for my raspy voice. Um, maybe it's not as raspy as I think. It's probably still really high-pitched, but it sounds odd. So sorry, everyone. <laughs> Here we are. Uh, so we are experiencing just this heightened time when skeletons can no longer remain in anyone's closets. And for a lot of people in the Christian world, especially within Christian leadership, um, That seems to be making a lot of headlines within the church, outside of the church, people casting stones at the church because all of the skeletons kind of continue to come out of the closet uh, currently and from things the church had did a really long time ago. Um, Obviously, we're seeing this like within politics and really on every platform. So it's not only happening in the church, but the church is not free of skeletons coming out of the closet. And it's a pretty key character in a lot of these things. The churches or the skeletons? Yes. Both. The church yeah. skeletons. Yeah, this, the church skeletons. So it's good to acknowledge and reconcile the harm that's been done by Christians and those who proclaim to follow Jesus. Like these are conversations we need to be having. We need to be talking about these things. Uh, we don't need to shy away from them just because they're uncomfortable and ugly and messy. Right. As we have often done on this podcast where we've talked about Christian nationalism recently, conspiracy theories, and even a degree of either accepting or condoning like slavery in our nation's past and particularly among those who we would consider, you know, quote unquote heroes of the faith. Then as we look more modern, a lot of the clergy sex abuse um, and, and just various different things like spiritual abuse and, and just a lot of stuff that, you know, we talk about on a weekly basis. But today is going to be different. We are not going to talk about all of the skeletons in everyone's closet. We're not going to talk about the um, uh, very difficult conversations today. We actually want to discuss some of the noteworthy contributions that the church has made to society throughout the centuries. Um, it may surprise you to know that uh, there are more things the church has contributed to or even spearheaded, started, uh, than I think a lot of people now in 2023 would even acknowledge Um, or give credit to the fact that it's really the church and their heart to care for people that these types of things exist in our society and in our world today. So we are going to look back at some really exciting things that the church has done. Um, And I think it's good to know that as a Christian, there is a lot of good that has come from the church, even though right now it, it all seems like the conversations are all bad. Um, again, I don't want to say, well, let's not talk about the bad. Let's only talk about the good. But I think we need to be talking about both things. Yeah. So today we are not going to be looking for skeletons in closets. We are going to be looking for blouses and powdered wigs, perhaps. But we'll dive into that blouses. in just a moment. 
All right. Tell me something good. Bum, bum. <laughs> that was good, huh? That was pretty good. You're welcome. <laughs> so as we said, we're going to be focusing on some of the notable contributions that the church has made to society, the notable positive contributions that uh, the church has made to society. And while there have certainly been cultural and historical evidences um, that powerful Christian leaders and Christian movements have done great harm to society, there's also a great amount that the church has done that serves, I think this is important, as an apologetic for the fact that we believe in Jesus and that when our belief in Jesus is applied properly, it actually does lead to the kind of abundant life that Jesus promised to us, that when people do faith in Jesus right, there's actually incredibly uh, good things that can come out of that. And that has happened on a number of different fronts across a number of different centuries in a number of different ways and 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 uh, manners uh, through the centuries uh, that this, the church has been around. And so we want to look at a couple of those and we've kind of uh, categorized them in different kind of buckets. And this first one we'll, we'll call uh, literary contributions. So it's very likely that you've heard about the printing press. It's um, this new thing. It's great. It's really fantastic. It's this way to not have to hand write um, page after page after page uh, like an entire novel. So that way you can distribute it. Uh, the role of a scribe is no longer necessary in our world. And that was started because of the printing press. And uh, I remember being in history and learning about the printing press, but I didn't remember anyone telling me that it was really this Christian movement that brought about the printing press. Um, so... The printing press was invented by Johann Gutenberg, which Johann, I, I think is Johann, how you say it. I've always just knew Johann. Hey, yo, Johann. Johann, Johann. I've always only known it as Gutenberg, right? Okay. The, Good, that part you got right. Yeah. See, because that's the way my brain only knows it. Anyways, in 1436. But prior to this invention, of course, there was no mass distribution of written material. Like, it just didn't happen. Societies and cultures function primarily on oral tradition, so they would pass down stories or history or family information, like everything was just verbally shared um, in group settings, even teaching, but it didn't always have to be so official. Just any kind of information that was shared was shared verbally because there was no way to share on mass scale information without the printing press. I will say one notable um, exception to that in the course of, of history is probably actually the church. Even as early as the second or the third century, I forget which uh, historian said this about the Christians, that they are a bookish people uh, because of the canon of scripture and other very important writings that were from uh, the apostolic and the sub-apostolic period. Um it's often been said that Christians are are the ones who invented books because we needed to bind the Bible. That's somewhat in dispute as to whether like we're the first ones who actually created these codices where there's a binding on the side and you flip the pages instead of opening a scroll. Uh, it, it, it probably existed before Christians started using it. But on the mass scale that Christians copied and distributed these writings, in, in fact, entire monasteries where monks would sit in rows for like 12 hours a day just copying the text of Scripture 
nature so that it could be distributed and copying other texts of, of say, the, the writings of Irenaeus or other uh, important church fathers, that from the very beginning, even in a world where oral tradition reigns supreme, Christians were very, like, we were people of the book and very much uh, a, a contributor to a, a very much a literary culture. But prior to the 1400s and Gutenberg having this brilliant idea of a printing press, it was all by hand. And so it was just right. an incredible cost. It was incredible labor to even get five copies of something. Yeah, you were only getting like minimal copies. And usually that was like the church copy of something, right? Like because within the within the church itself they had an entire profession scribes who were dedicated to copying the scriptures um and it wasn't like anyone could just walk in and decide i'm going to be a scribe like there was training there was learning like you had to go through a lot of steps uh to learn how to do this the right way and it was Um, rigorous it was right and you're kind of like hunched over writing all day and I can't remember what book I read, but it was just talking about like the aches and pains of a scribe as they're just like stuck in this position trying to. Oh, yeah. uh, Like their back and their knees and the whole thing. Yeah. But um, as great as that was and as systematized as that was, uh, there was still very, very few copies of whatever was being copied because to handwrite an entire book is a very slow process. Um, and to handwrite the entire Bible, obviously that's a really slow process. So that's when you just had churches, like an entire church had a copy, or they might've only had one book within the Bible copied and available to like read out to their congregants. So it wasn't even necessarily like churches had entire copies of the whole Bible. They might just have portions of it, and those were shared from church to church as well. Yeah, and I mean, to be sure, these first Bibles that were printed on the Gutenberg printing press, have you ever seen a Gutenberg Bible? Yes. Yeah, at the Huntington Library here yeah. in uh, Southern California, they every once in a while, they'll rotate it in where they have this, it's huge, it's this display, this huge Bible, and so those first Bibles certainly, and they're like very adorned and beautiful, and there's lots of kind of... Um, art on them uh those were probably not you know for personal consumption um but what they did is they proved that this technology worked and uh eventually later iterations of this technology you could do uh, printing of personal bibles and other personal books and things like that um but kind of the idea of mass-produced books was um born of the impulse to give people access to the bible And something else that's so interesting is the heart behind the creation of the printing press was so that the Bible could become more easily accessible. I know you talked about like later there would be personal Bibles, but at this point it just, it really wasn't accessible even for churches in the way that, certainly not in the way that we understand it today, but the entire like creation and innovation behind the printing press started with the church wanting people to be able to have Bibles um, accessible, churches to have Bibles accessible, and that just didn't happen before. Of course, that ended up leading to different kinds of Christian publication, but later that expanded out to far more than just Christians using the printing press. Yeah, it's just, it's interesting to note that 
uh, in the last 2,000 years, wherever there has been an advancement in terms of literature and getting literature produced on a, a broad scale to the masses, the church has always been in the neighborhood of that advancement. Right. You even just think about scribes and the whole system behind scribes and the schooling of a scribe. Um, that was the church. And so later you have others that are non-Christians using scribes and using the system. And then we fast forward over to the 1400s where we have the printing press and it's the next great advancement. But again, it started with Christians um, and then the whole world benefits from these um, innovations and technologies. Yeah. So if you like books, thank the church. Exactly. <laughs> that's that's all we wanted to say. Yeah. And so even beyond books, though, um, this goes uh, further uh, to education as well, which Christians have been uh, a key player in advancing education as well. But we'll talk about that in just a moment. So Christians, maybe we didn't invent books, but we certainly did them better than anybody else at the beginning. And then there was the advancement of the Gutenberg uh, Press, which um, allowed the Bible to be uh, mass-produced for the first time and then other forms of literature to be mass-produced. But Christians have been um, more than just about reading. Uh, we've also been at the forefront of a lot of educational institutions, particularly here in the West. Right. So schools in America were founded by the church. It was the church who was raising money, who was building the building, who was planting the teachers. Um, and this dates back even prior to the establishment of the United States. It In the 1700s, when schools in England were run by the Catholic Church, like in order for you to uh, have any kind of education for your kids, it was you went to the school that the church had provided for that community. Uh, in America, particularly, it was the Quakers, the Mennonites, the Presbyterians, the Catholics, and the Baptists who were educating the children in schools that were formed for the purpose, of course, of religious education. But it wasn't just so that they could educate on theology and topics of the church. All of the other subjects were mixed into their desire to educate the children. Um, but over the years, Christians even then started to expand into colleges and higher education universities. Again, not just providing religious education, but very diverse curriculum. And some of the most well-known prestige schools still to this day began as Christian universities. Um, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, Oxford, like all of these Ivy League schools that like high schoolers are currently stressing about trying to get into. It's okay. You're probably not going to get into it. Just go to Cal Poly. <laughs> it's way cheaper. Yeah. The so degrees on the same piece of paper. Yeah. So these institutions all began as Christian schools. Of course, the history, they've clearly changed from their original goal of religious education along with all the other things. But it's just so interesting to know that there were no systems put in place to educate children, to educate people prior to the church stepping in building a church, funding the church, I mean, building schools, funding the schools, and providing teachers. So usually a kid would either be, you know, 
helping take care of the farm, um, helping around the house. They might even go into some kind of an apprenticeship program if that was within the lineage of their family. Um, If they had a lot of money, there might be a private tutor that was hired in order to educate the children in the house. I mean, that's only if you were like bougie, bougie. Right. You had to have a lot of money. So the opportunity for really any kind of education available to families was through the church and the church alone. Right. Yeah. So... Just the the impulse of the church to not only have access to the Bible to be able to read it, um, and I can't, but I can't remember who said this quote. Um, but they referred to theology as the queen of the sciences, meaning that you know theology, if theology, theological education is the capstone of kind of the Christian life, um, there are still all of these other areas of study that are important. Uh, underneath it, whether it be scientific inquiry, whether it be literature, whether it be history, all these things, it was very much a part of the Christian ethic to be very well versed in these things, to be very well read because of the belief that God created the world and everything in it and that all knowledge is God's knowledge and all truth is God's truth. And so there's very much a a, a Christian background behind the idea of, you know, public school for one, and then higher education, universities, and obviously the the initial impulse was seminaries, but it expanded right. way beyond that. Uh, and we still see the evidence of, evidences of that in our society today, as well as across the pond in England and, and really the world over, um, just the, 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 the educational systems that uh, – that we have today. And of course we can criticize the educational systems in a lot of ways, but they've done a lot of good. I think if you, we can, (laughs) we can at least say that like we can, we can uh, criticize systems as they currently exist. But the idea of higher education uh, was really a distinctly Christian idea. And now other people who aren't Christians still have that idea, but you know, where'd they get it from? They got it from the church originally. Yeah. And even as we were, I was looking into some stuff for this podcast, I was surprised. So I knew schools, you know, were mainly started and funded by uh, the church. But I didn't know that the first black college that actually opened up in 1837 was started by the church, particularly a Quaker philanthropist, Richard Humphrey. He's the one who started the Institute for Colored Youth in Philadelphia in 1837. Um, Just for context, that's like 25 years before the Civil War. Yes. Yeah. So the um, it it initially started as uh, an elementary school and then it it grew into a high school and then it grew into offering higher education or higher level courses uh, for people to be able to come and be educated. And I just couldn't believe that it was the church that kind of began to pave that way for um, uniquely black colleges to exist, certainly in a time when that was absolutely unheard of. And even after the, I think it's called the, the Morrill Act of 1862. I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but that was when it was really talking about integrating students within the education system. Of course, your publicly funded colleges, particularly colleges, um, found ways to get around that integration. Yeah, and that was even about a year into the Civil War. So people are on the front lines fighting to end 
slavery, but then there's still this question of integration even in the north. Right. Yeah. So many states were finding ways to get around this new act that was passed. And so yet again, the church had stepped in and started these faith-based colleges. We There was one in New Orleans called Dillard University um, that provided African-Americans with a liberal arts education since 1869. In 1910, North Carolina Central University began as the National Religious Training School. So that was particularly more like a seminary um, than your other kinds of schools. Uh, but there's other notable uh, colleges that were that were established and founded primarily for educating um, African-Americans that began by the church. And uh, I, I was just really astounded to find that there were so many of them, even when there was such conflict happening, right? Like the government didn't say this needed to happen yet. And then even when they did say it needed to happen, people were obviously very much against it. So I'm sure even within the Christian community, unfortunately, there was a lot of opposition, but it was still members within the church that had such a heart to move this forward for the sake of for the sake of the faith that they put money behind it and they put all of their life behind it. Yeah, and it certainly this adds kind of a layer of complexity when we think about like Christian higher education and Christian institutions that are educational institutions. Because you look at what happened, you know, uh, kind of just prior to the Civil War and during and a little bit after the Civil War, uh, where there are these, you know, Christian impulses to create these faith-based educational institutions that will educate um, uh, black students. Then you fast forward to like the 1950s and the 1960s where, uh, you know, public school is um, not integrated. And there are a lot of, you know, evangelical Christians, particularly in the South, who were very much against the integration of public schools. And so they kind of were, you know, there's a lot of other things involved in this. But under this blanket, you know, declaration that we need to go back to Christian values, um, the the private Christian school movement in America, in many ways, from you know from the mid century on, was a, a a backlash against the prospect of racial integration, and so there were these were segregation academies that kind of started, and that's kind of so it's um, it's kind of like this mixed legacy of higher education, and there's really a question of which of our histories are we going to tap into mm, yeah. where there was these private Christian institutions that were created so that we could maintain segregation um, when just a hundred years prior Christians were creating these Christian institutions so that there could be uh, black students who could get educated. And so it's just this, this interesting kind of grab bag that where our, our politics, you know, the emerging Christian right, uh, maybe led us astray. Uh, a look a little bit further back can show that uh, maybe we had elements of this right the first time before we kind of changed our stance on it as an as a, a a general movement of of white evangelicals yeah the understanding of today of what you know uh the church did to fight against segregation to fight against any kind of forward movement for anyone who had uh no rights like even including women at the time you know that it was um it was a, the first women's college 
was established by the church um, in 1836, it was established and then it finally opened its doors in 1839 and it had enrolled the first 90 women in America uh, to receive higher education. And it's like you said, now you look at like the contributions of the church sp- specifically when it comes to women's rights, specifically when it comes to any kind of forward movement for any kind of a minority or anyone who um, is sort of on the fringes of what was this white America that started. Uh, so it does feel rather like a contradiction, like what are we standing for today versus what did the, the church contribute and fight for in the beginning where women absolutely had no rights. Um, and it was the church that decided to open up a school and fund it. And um, obviously at that point it would have been a private education. Um, and I can't remember where that school was. I think it was in Georgia. So yeah, I think you're right. There's just a lot, there's a lot mixed into that too. Like we don't just want to say like, look at how great the church was. There was obviously a lot of people still within the church that countered all of these things that were moving forward. Yeah, I mean, even when you look at, like, women's suffrage, uh, there were a lot of Christians opposed to that, but there were also a lot of Christians who were on the forefront of that conversation as well. And so a lot of times we tend to think of, like, oh, it was probably the Christians that were anti-segregation, and there were a lot of them that were. There were the Christians who were anti-abolition, and there were a lot of them that were. There were the Christians that were anti-women, and there were a lot of them that there were. But when it comes to... uh, the advancement of a lot of these agendas, it was also Christians who were at the forefront of those things. Um, and they were rooting their uh, advocacy of these things in their faith and in their right. understanding of what uh, the Bible says and who Jesus is. Yeah. And particularly when it comes to women and um, op- Christians opening up the first college for women to be able to access education um i didn't understand the the weight of that until like looking into this because now you have so many christians that are really moving back in time in the role of a woman right right like her and i've even heard it said like that i should not be working like I am, I am doing my family harm by even considering working, even considering going to college. Um, and that is just, it's just, it's really bizarre to me to hear that in the first place. But then like, this is even what people were thinking. Well, maybe some, but there were a lot of Christians that were on the forward movement of no, we should allow women to be educated. Like that's a good thing for our society. That's a good thing for women. Like that is um, edifying and glorifying who God has created them to be to allow, even just allow them to have the choice of education. Uh, prior to the establishment of colleges, it, it was no choice. A woman had absolutely no choice right. of what she wanted to do. Anyways, that's a tangent. Sorry. <laughs> so apart from just... Um, books and education uh the church was traditionally the group of people in society that would care for the poor 
poor, the sick, the widows and the orphans. And it was through the church that the entire concept of an orphanage was established. And this idea that there are going to be children that are either unwanted, they're abandoned for whatever reason or other, they don't have a family. The church is going to step in and create a home for them and, and create a space to take care of them. So again, this is all moved out of the mission of Jesus. Like this is what we're called to do is to care for others. And so how do we care for some of the most weak and the most vulnerable in our society, which is abandoned children, right? So that came out of this biblical call for the church to take care of marginalized and vulnerable people in society. They created the orphanage. And they did it pretty early on in the church's history. As early as the 4th century, uh, there were monasteries that uh, that took the task of you know, fostering uh, orphaned children. And this came, you know, went up straight up to the Middle Ages. Monasteries would take in these children. They also fought against the practice of abandoning unwanted children, and they established what were called uh, foundling hospitals. And so really from the beginning, this was a Christian project to um, provide welfare for um, abandoned children, orphaned children, and things of the like. Yeah, and as cities were being established and there was like self-governing within a city, these institutions of orphanages and even schools were really critical to the um, prosperity of that city's growth because now you had, um, even though they were private, private in many ways, they were the only institutional options, whether it be for orphanages or education. So it kind of felt more like a public service because the church made their services available to anyone. You didn't have to be... A Christian, you didn't have to go to church in order to um, benefit from uh, the orphanages and the schools. And, and later we'll talk on about hospitals. But these really became such critical infrastructures for the growth of any kind of a city uh, as they were learning how to self-govern and step in and like provide these things for their their community. It was the church who already had these things established to allow for growth within that city. Yeah, so there was a fair bit of hand-holding, I would imagine, between the church and whatever municipality they were in. But by and large, these were actually funded by the church, even though they were public services that uh, now we would more understand as being provided by uh, by the government, uh, as, as all other public services are, like roads and other infrastructure and things like that. Right. And particularly in America, um, like around the 19th century, we really see just this spike of, of kids that were abandoned. And the church is, again, usually the one who would who would establish orphanages in response to a war or an epidemic. Um, and they would just step in and make even if it's just making their facilities available, but they would do more than that and really establish systems that the community could work within. Uh, it was the church that first began any kind of a drop-off location for unwanted children. I mean, now we know you can um, drop off unwanted children at like a fire department and hospitals, but originally it was the church um who it was just commonly known that you could you could drop off unwanted children at their doorstep and this dated back prior to America when churches had established themselves as safe locations to drop off unwanted children um <clears throat> as i was looking more into this like drop off site um 
it was interesting how there was even like it was called uh the foundling wheels that it was this part of the architect of the church itself where is a bit of this like revolving like it wasn't necessarily a door but you could like it was perfect size for a baby you stick the baby in and then you just spin the door so then the baby is now safely in the church yeah it's kind of like a the price is right wheel flip it on its side (laughs) and then open a hole in it stick the baby in there and you just you know like a like a lazy susan yeah uh, put the baby inside the the church building so that it would it would not be exposed to the elements before uh some clergy could come and tend to it right and this just this alone had saved hundreds of thousands of lives and it really became such a marker of what the church was for the community and uh, that they cared for children. They cared for the vulnerable and they weren't going to just condemn moms for not wanting their children. They were going to say, look, you can just, (laughs) this sounds terrible. Look, you can just put your baby in the Dropbox and, you know, it can be, it can be anonymous. We don't need to know who you are. We don't need to know why. We don't need to know Really anything that you don't want to share with us, but our promise and our commitment to you is that we're going to still take care of this child. Right. Yeah. Which, I mean, when you you look back on the pro-life movement in general, um, I think for us as evangelicals, I think what we need to recognize a lot of times is that uh, we're kind of late to the game on the pro-life movement, whereas Catholics have been beating this drum since like the 1100s, I think it was 1198 Pope Innocent III, uh, he had this decree that you had to provide these services as a local parish, that you had to provide, you know, the the Wheel of Fortune wheel so that the, the children could be dropped off with anonymity, that we weren't going to ask questions to the mothers. We were just going to make sure that these babies were cared for, uh, which, you know, in many ways is a lot more pro-life than, you know, voting so that a judge will be appointed or voting mm. on a certain legislation. Like there was a lot of skin in the game and certainly there isn't a lot of evangelical circles today um, where adoption rates amongst evangelicals are higher than the, the you know, the average population. Um, but it's tapping into this long history of a tradition, even broader than our own, you know, theological stream of things that it's been a pretty universal value of the the church to not only be pro-birth, quote-unquote, um, but to be pro-life in a very mm. holistic sense with the services for infants, with the services for uh, providing shelter and care for uh, orphans and, and children who were either unwanted or their parents, uh, you know, had an untimely demise. Yeah, and it was, even within Roman culture, it was common for parents to abandon their kids on, like, these steep rocks they would just leave them there. And it was the church who would nightly go and visit these sites that they knew children were going to be abandoned. And they would just pick up all of the children and take them home and take care of them. Like that was the, that was the degree. That was the extent that was the, um, like selflessness that the church had to really say, we care about lives so much. So, that we will make sure every night we show up to this spot where people normally drop their kids off and we're just going to take every single baby that's there. Yeah. And so, in especially within those early days of the church, there were kids everywhere because they, 
They were just picking up all the babies they could get. And so um, the church has always been pro-life in that way. And uh, when it comes to healthcare, uh, it might surprise you to know that the churches from the very early uh, decades and centuries of the church has also been very pro-healthcare. Yeah, it was during the Greco-Roman era that the understanding of a hospital, the institution of a hospital where people can come and be treated, it began and it was a Christian institution. So you're telling me that Christians invented books, schools, orphanages, and hospitals. Yes. I mean, that as far as like your greatest hits, like that's not bad. <laughs> That's no, because those are all still things that we're using today, and they're so critical to the structure of our societies as well. Like just basic infrastructure yeah. of a, a society that has you know some kind of quality of life for people at the top as well as at the bottom. Yeah, and I wanted to read this quote from a historian, uh, Gary Ferngren, I believe, and he actually... Um, specializes in the history of like the medical field and um, like the growth of that, the different kind of practices of medicine. And this is what he says. The hospital was in origin and conception, a distinctively Christian institution rooted in Christian concepts of charity and philanthropy. There were no pre-Christian institutions in the ancient world that served the purpose that Christian hospitals were created to serve. None of the provisions for healthcare in classical times resembled hospitals as they developed in the late fourth century. And as you said, this is coming from a historian who specializes yes. in the history of medicine, which is a very specific field right. of study. <laughs> yeah. So this isn't just like some preacher guy Christian who's like, historian who's, who's who's like, like pulling something out of yeah, their hat. Yeah. This is like a like a like a scholar who studies yeah. the history of medicine. He says it's a distinctly Christian idea, healthcare and hospitals are. Yeah, and to be fair, medicine was practiced prior to the creation of the hospital. Like medicine was out there. Uh, but it took on more firms forms of like someone was an herbalist, they were a magician, they were a folk healer. Like there wasn't this understanding of the Hippocratic tradition that we now know to be kind of the fundamental aspect of the medical field. Right. So Hippocrates lived in like the 400s and the 300s BC. So about 300 years before the formation of the church, but his ideas were very much part of, you know, um, kind of a, 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 a select kind of philosophy that um, the church really learned from, a lot of his medical practices in pursuit of how do we care for people's illnesses and injuries um, and in many ways popular, popularized that and systematized it uh, in the form of the institution of hospitals. Yeah, and I want to be clear, the Romans did have an approximation of a hospital, so you might be listening and say, that's not true, that wasn't the first type of hospital Right, but that one random historian yeah, listens to us. That one exactly. Roman historian. So, because I am a historian over here, um, the Romans did have an approximation of a hospital, but it was only available as like this place to clean up and heal soldiers and slaves. So it wasn't something that it was only so we could <laughs> stitch you back, yes. stitch you back up, and send you back out. Exactly. No, really, <laughs> it wasn't for it's like true. if you had like a heart condition. 
no, no. Like the average person wasn't going. If your kid was sick, you were not showing up here. Like no one was going to take care of you. You went to the magician. You went to the herbalist or, you know, the folk killer. Like that's who you were going to. Or more often than not, you just suffered and died. Like that's. Yeah, that's true. It's pretty that's much the way true. it went. Yes. So um, the same historian that I quoted earlier, Fernigren. Uh, he had said uh, after, you know, he was citing archaeology and documentary evidence that all of those things conclude that there is no other professional group uh, that comes close to the number of physicians that existed within the early church. Uh, so not only were they establishing hospitals, but they were also the ones who were thinking of like training doctors and having an official system with official standards that in order for you to practice and to operate, like you need to at least uphold some of these types of things, the go through these types of training. Um, so you couldn't just say like, I'm a, I'm a magician and I'm a physician. Like I'm showing up and here I am to take care of you. Like there was actually systems and structures that the church was creating uh, so that there were standards within uh, the care of the sick and hurting people. Yeah, so it's not that Christians invented medicine. No. It's that medicine was there, the best practices were there, and so whatever doctors they had among them, is like, can you train more doctors so that we can systematize yeah. this so that uh, you know there's people that can be treated um, and also that they can be treated regardless of their um, their their position in society, the level of money they had, uh, that treatment would be available to them uh, regardless of where they stood financially. Yeah, and the uh, hospitals that were established by churches didn't turn people away, which is really interesting That I, thing that I read. And of course, my brain is on honestly like, what about the financial side of things? How did they, like, how did they take everyone on? And um then that made me realize like it was the heart of generosity that the congregation had to have in order to make schools, orphanages and hospitals possible. You have to fund those things. And they were primarily funded by the the gifts and donations and generosity of the congregation, which I can bet you was more than 10 percent. Yeah. <laughs> and so, again, much like the orphanages, um. They, they were these privately funded institutions, uh, hospitals were, that really then served to become part of the infrastructure of the society around them. So there's a lot of hand-holding with their municipalities. And this was particularly true after 313 AD when Christianity was legalized in the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire. Uh, Constantine uh, converted to Christianity and the whole bit, uh, that there again became this very uh, symbiotic relationship with what the church was privately funding and doing and advancing and um, the public service it was providing um, that, that became an integral part of the infrastructure of society. Right. And as you talk about Basil and his uh, charities, like all it, hospitals was not the only thing that was being established there was soup kitchens and poor houses trade schools hostels for needy travelers personal care for the elderly and a hospice system for the dying uh, the staff dispensed food medical care to all who approached regardless of their religious affiliation um, and this was established 
during a time when this was like unusual to have any kind of institutions or care in this capacity was just not common. But because of the church and their forward movement in this progress, things like this became common. So even today, like to think there wouldn't be hospice or there wouldn't be hospitals or there wouldn't be places for homeless people to go. Or even like ambulances, paramedics, emergency services. Like those are all kind of, there were proto versions of that that arose from these early Christian institutions. Yeah, and even with the establishment of all of that, the growth of the research aspect within the medical field was really spearheaded by the church because they, for the first time, had a group of medical professionals that work together to try and move forward uh, what science and um, medical technology could do for the benefit of people. Right, because they would look like, it seems like a lot of people are dying from this one thing. Yes. How, let's workshop how we can fix that thing so that people stop dying. Yeah, they were, you know, working on treatments and large, large number of patients and judging the effectiveness of a certain treatment. And uh, just the idea of the science of medical technology really being established in many ways by the church feels very counter to the way that Christians are understanding uh, medical advancements today. Yeah. Again, in many ways, it's it's a call to yeah. look back yeah. towards um you know, earlier Christian history to say like, oh, maybe those guys were reading the same Bible that I am. And they had some ideas that, you know, seem to be pretty good for for society. And even talking about, you mentioned St. Uh, Basil the Great uh, was this influential figure in uh, theology, uh, but even just in uh, philanthropy. And he actually wrote in a couple of different places about this idea that if you have the resources to fulfill your brother's need and you don't, then you're actually stealing from him. Wow. Yeah. And so, and he, this was like, you know, a thousand plus years before Karl Marx. And so he wasn't getting those ideas from, you know, socialism or, right. or yeah. communism. Yeah. Or talking about the means of production. He was just like looking at the Bible and this is where he arrived. And that was the impulse that led him to do so much by way of advocacy for uh, welfare programs that would help those who are impoverished and, um, you know, healthcare programs that would help people who were sick and ill and weren't, you know, of the elite class that could afford a private doctor or whatever it might have been. And so um, there's something to looking way back to way, church way history, back it feels like yeah to the traditions that we came from to to see how they were reading the bible in their cultural context that could be instructive for us today and a lot of it that you see was out of this idea of like what did jesus do when he was here um he cared about people he he was healing the sick and he was um like eating dinner with the marginalized people that you don't eat dinner with. He was going out into the community and actually caring for people. So certainly we're not advocating for just this idea of uh, the social gospel, right? But to take out the very real and felt needs of humans and and, um, parse it out from the goodness of the gospel is actually to separate some very critical parts of scripture and very critical parts of Jesus's ministry. Yeah. And so I feel like as we look back at these instances in which Christians in a very like real way improved the world around them, like we can take 
pride in the fact that we come from a tradition that has valued education, wisdom, philanthropy, healthcare, caring for the least of these. Uh, we can genuinely take pride in those things. And now obviously, like we can eat with each of these things. We can say like, was there racial inequality? Was there economic inequality that was mixed in with a lot of these things? Yeah. And we could definitely look at those things and, and talk about them. And, you know, we often do on this podcast, but if you could just like, if we can just take a step back and take a snapshot of the um, just beautiful things that have been advanced in the name of Jesus, that when we look to scripture, we say, wow, that's completely congruent with scripture that they would do this and they actually did it. And so there's a lot of examples in our history where Christians have not been congruent with the Jesus that they say that they serve, but there have been a lot of other instances where they absolutely have. And we have that those, those people who came before us to thank for a lot of the good things that we now enjoy in a modern society. Uh, and that we continue to advocate for a lot of those things were Christian ideas. Like what if babies, you know, didn't die in the streets? What if people didn't die from preventable diseases? What if people could read? What if people could get educated? Like these were like things that Christians were thinking about and they weren't just thinking about them. They were trying to put them into action. And it was very much grounded and rooted within their faith, right? Like this is what we are to do as Christians is to actually care for other people. And so I do hope that um, even as chaotic as our times are now, and as we unfortunately look at the reputation of Christians and the churches and um, like, it's just gotten real messy. Like I hope we can look back and see a lot of the good that the church fought for and even like continue on that legacy as we live and exist in our in our own societies, in our own communities. Yeah. And so uh, I will leave you with the words of Basil the Great, who said, Works of piety are an excellent burial garment. Make your departure dressed with the full regalia of your good deeds. Convert your wealth into a truly inseparable adornment. Keep everything with you when you go. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other faith-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kainosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.